Hi everyone, welcome to this special movie review edition of Tinseltown Thunderdome. What's up guys? What's up man? Cameron here. Hey, it's Aaron. Glad to be back. Today we are going to be looking at Christopher Nolan's 12th feature film, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer came into theaters July 21st of this year, 2023, but it is not known as a standalone to the American audience. Barbenheimer, the phenomenon, took theaters by storm this summer. We had an earlier episode on Barbie. Now we have all seen Oppenheimer. A little late in the game, but we hope that you've had some time to mull over this film. And if you haven't seen it, maybe we'll inspire you to get out of your house once again. With Oppenheimer, Nolan moves into historical film and biopic, which I found to be something pretty intriguing and have been waiting to see this movie for a couple of years since it was first announced. This film also marks Christopher Nolan's exodus from Warner Brothers, his longtime studio partner, um, in the wake of the Tenet disaster, as some may call it, or as I might call it. Um, Nolan uh, sought other suitors or the other way around. Um, let's dive into this movie. Um, we've all seen this over the last two months now. That's crazy. It's been two months. I have been waiting for this like a nuclear test to discuss with you guys. Waiting for the, the movie or the, epi- the episode? Well, the movie for years, but now the episode. So we can do it. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, what do you, what do you think about this movie? It's three hours long, on the dot. Nolan impeccable with time as always. Or... Obsessed, maybe not impeccable. Similarly to our discussion on Barbie, I think it. I, I want to just start by saying I'm just astounded by the success of it in the box office. Yeah, it's amazing that this you know has no no characters with superpowers, and yet people came in droves. It's too slow. It's too long. It is masturbatory. It has so much reverence for a really kind of shameful figure in American history. And it's a masterpiece. (laughs) The movie has some really deadly faults to it that otherwise would have been, I think, extremely problematic for any other film and possibly 95% of other topics. But this topic is so consequential. It's Schindler's List-esque in terms of its significance. And I could see that by everyone that was in the audience with me. Every geezer around me was there and glued to the screen as if Walter Cronkite was like revealing the news. It was shocking to me in a way that um, I really didn't expect. I thought I'd see some older folks. um, And then I thought I would see some younger people who were like film nerds and then kind of a sprinkling of everyone else. This theater was packed, and I was the youngest person by 40 years. By 40 years, and I'm 40. I mean, wow. these were octogenarians. Uh, uh, some people came in, in in walkers. Some people were running for president. It was just, the, it was a mess. I think all the pre-40 demographics saw yeah, it Yeah, I think that ago. was the deal. Those people left their house <laughs> when the movie came out, and they just arrived. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, did, I admit I saw it two weeks ago, but but the theater was packed. 
I mean, it's still making money. It was a Tuesday. So um, it, I, I was impressed by the audience. I, I was impressed by the film. I, the film did have some some weaknesses, but the weaknesses are fully overlookable because of the the quality of this film's content and the exploration of this man and the acting was phenomenal yeah. <laughs> like for for once i look at a nolan film and i think wow this film's overall construction is actually overshadowed by the quality of the acting and that is not normally the case normally it's like the nolanness of the film is what makes the film so powerful and that didn't feel that way this time yeah i think killian murphy and Robert Downey Jr. and even Matt Damon, um, Florence Pugh, they had some solid. I mean, Killian Murphy had me mesmerized. Um, I, wait, Aaron, when you said that the the people in the theater, the octogenarians in the theater, were glued to the screen as if Walter Con- Cronkite were going to reveal, I thought, given an adjective used earlier, you're going to say reveal his Prometheus, but. <laughs> It was on that note. It was, there was like a, a strange titillation um, that was not sexual, but like it was just like. Did this have something to do with Florence Pugh? No, no. Oh. That's, that's that scene aside. <laughs> two hours of no. The sex scene aside. This is nothing about sex. Oh, okay. Sorry. Two, it was just on my mind. Yeah, no, this is about fire. This is actually about Prometheus. So, oh. two hours and fifteen minutes until the test. I was on the edge of my seat for really nothing that I could. I couldn't really explain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it had something to do with the sound environment and the storytelling and the acting. I was on the edge of my seat up until like the big moment that I knew would happen. Um, it just felt very consequential and present, even though this is from the forties, something about the intercutting of, of, and, and also not knowing exactly the timing. Like, you know, we find out a little bit, at the end, we get placed a little more with the Robert Downey Jr.'s timeline. Um, I, I knew it was post-war, but in my mind, it was a little later. But then once we hear certain famous figures named, I'm like, oh, this is this is more shortly afterwards. But like not knowing exactly the time, I was like on the edge of my seat trying to put it together. In the last 45 minutes, however, that's where... I, I, it's not that I lost interest, but I felt... So that 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 tautness that um uh, it didn't fall apart because I I understand why it ended how it did, but um was it like the I momentum was, was lost? Almost? Yeah, I was gripped totally gripped um a little bit thrown off by like the strange love homage being so on the nose though I guess Teller is the guy strange love is based off of so um I, I realizing that later remembering what I read about Evan Teller. Then I was like, oh, okay, that was earned. But at the moment, that kind of threw me off. And and after the, that's not what knocked me out of it. But as we find out the kind of later 1950s storyline in more detail, the way Nolan brings it out in this like 12 Angry Men finish, that's like really probably 35 minutes long. I lost that intensity, but still really appreciated the movie. That's really interesting. I would say the last third of the film was easily my favorite. Um, And while the beginning of the movie was intriguing and the storyline was really interesting. I mean, first of all, I'm glad you were enthralled by this extreme procedural. It was, um, it was really 
uh, well done procedural, but very procedural. And um, yeah, are you trying to score some point here? Yeah, it's a, <laughs> absolutely. You hate procedurals, I, and you I, love this procedural. Yeah, that's the point. There's no scoring. Yeah, and I it's love, just I'm glad that you liked a procedural. This is this I love is a good revelation. Well, no, I'm you you sit, tend I'm to not, dislike I'm not sit through the report again. You tend to dislike yeah. procedurals on on principle, and then when there's an exception to the rule, you are pleased. And it seems like this is an exception to the rule. Yes, for sure, it's an exception to the rule. This is this is a. Uh, I would say this is a top 60 film for me because it is so important. That's a weird number and just also to put that emotional. out there. Of, of all <laughs> the choices of just, numbers, that was a just, weird choice. Just ask, just ask nuclear physicists. They'll tell you why I chose them. Hey, I oh. think you. I think Killian Murphy reminds me. I, I don't me, know why, but they would come up with something. <laughs> Killian Murphy reminds me of you, so I am very much um, – like I think his personality, his thinking – his his uh, his attitude and and approach is this like really introspective, philosophical, moral, yet conflicted, and and conflicted for all the right reasons. Like okay, there's this like there are these certain principles, but also like there are real world consequences, and I've got to deal with this. So, I mean, I think you could probably watch that film if if you're like me when I when I find characters that. I can identify with it is particularly revelatory for me when the movie is great because I'm like, Oh man, like I identify with this character. This character has something significant that they are exploring in themselves, not just in, in the film. And I'm captivated. And this storyteller is pulling something out of it that helps me identify something within. And whether that's true or not, I looked at that film and I'm like, man, I can see Matt in Killian Murphy. I can see this person who has these kinds of internal philosophical conflicts. I mean, I think it might not be Nolan's 14th film, but his 15th film, he has the rights to my life. Um, (laughs) So you'll be able to see that on screen, I guess. You're just a tortured man who's ended the world, Matt. This is a good thing. <laughs> I I want to go like you mentioned this comment about this um about sort of a repugnant figure or or uh, I I agree, but I actually think Nolan. What I found clever about the last third was while he was uh, Oppenheimer's put on trial. So there are spoilers in this in this review, by the way, for anybody who's listening. Um, when he's put on trial. I mean, the audience certainly I think is supposed to identify with him, and and I did. But then there's a certain point where even though the the guy who's cross-examining him is just a hack and and is um and is doing a hit job, he hits on something to the point where Oppen- not just Oppenheimer's adversary, but Oppenheimer is deconstructed and and laid bare as someone who's fooled himself and maybe we've fooled ourselves. And I, I'm not used to that level of depth from Nolan outside of like, am I awake or am I asleep? Um, but this was this was a, I think a deeper layer for him. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't think Nolan um, gave a pass to um, Oppenheimer's own internal conflict. I think he explores that, and I think he. But I think at the end, you, you strip all the 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 component pieces away. Oppenheimer is a hero, not an anti-hero to this film. And 
I, I think there, there's, there's, there's a question there of like, should he be the hero? And I don't know that, like, I, I feel like, like Nolan actually gives you as the, the viewer, the ability to see that, well, maybe he doesn't quite deserve hero status, but then in the end, Nolan serves you the hero plate and you get to eat it. (laughs) And I think that was a little off putting to me. Like, I think he could have um, taken that away a little bit. And that, 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 that part could have been better for me that that would have been a perfect film for me had, had Oppenheimer not been left for the audience as a hero, but had been left as this, this figure that was, you need to decide instead. It's like, he gives you the tools to be able to decide, but then he says, Hey, I know you, you could decide, but let me tell you, he is actually a hero. It's kind of a, it's a, there's a vacuousness to this heroic Mm. triumph, but he is the hero and I believe him to be the hero. Is it because of his retreat from the H bomb at the end? And like, his kind of like, Oh, we are, we have unwound the world. I I mean, or is it, I think Nolan gives you as the viewer, the, um, he, he, he wants you to believe that Oppenheimer believed even in his hubris that he was doing something good for the world and that, that there was more of an effort to do something good, that he would end wars, that this was going to be a positive thing. than there was ego or desire to, um, to, to, to have this, this impressive accomplishment or, or, or even just like pure America should win. And this is how we can get America to win. Like he really invests in this, you know, idea that Oppenheimer had pure intent and that there's all this conflict in his mind, but he's got this crazy mind. It's always shooting a million miles an hour. There's literally all these neural things that he can see. So don't, you know, don't blame him if he didn't quite get it all figured out in advance, but like, I'm not sure that that's the way to leave the movie. I find him to be an unreliable narrator for, I'm going to give kind of three things in the film that, that make me feel, think that the first is from the start the whole cyanide apple episode that is super as soon as i left the movie i was like if this is made up this movie's trash i like that it's too big you cannot you cannot take license with that but it is it is something that's based in reality i mean it's um did did niels bohr almost bite the apple i don't think so but that's i don't have a problem with that um, it's at least based. Maybe, maybe in, it's did. at least based in Oppenheimer's reality that we know. Of. Yeah, he, he Oppenheimer wrote about how he tried to no poison his teacher, but that gives us the thing. It's like okay, this guy, there's something off. There is something off. There's something different. And then a, a second thing is, um, I'm going to go more towards the end of the movie. The whole there is the scene where he's talking to the the um, the, the bulldog prosecutor guy who's after him. Who Robert Downey Jr. Well, you, anyway, guy is asking him basically asking him these questions, and Oppenheimer sort of starts to freeze up because the questions are like, "Well, you were you're against the H bomb, why?" And he kind of gets to the point where Oppenheimer starts to wonder, "Well, if I if I were in charge now, like I would just be 
pushing forward with this for ego. And I I took it as that. Like he he had deceived himself much of the time throughout, taking the moral high ground as a cover-up for himself so he could feel good about you know what he did as an ego move to make this great bomb and do this thing and then suddenly to deal with those doubts he felt um when he thought about all the death he started to go against what the next generation of scientists were doing like einstein sort of pointed to and he's like these guys are gonna remove you so like oppenheimer was one step ahead where he's like well he was a great, and then he was going to trash the next generation as being savage. The third thing, sorry to keep going, it was more subtle. The way that Nolan deals with Oppenheimer's relationships, I think, was really subtle for Nolan. And, and subtle for anybody. Mm-hmm. Where you, you kind of, he's kind of skating through. It's really ephemeral. But like there is an affair with his colleague who I think kills himself. Yeah, and it's kind of mentioned, but like we're seeing this through Oppenheimer's eyes, and we never really see the affair. But there's there's energy and but you mean you mean there's so an affair like, with his colleague's wife, with his colleague's yeah, wife, right, right? This woman who's a bit older, R- but Ruth, you know, Ruth, they're, they're somebody, Ruth, at the party. Yeah, 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 Ruth. But we don't see that, so you get this sense, very subtle sense that Oppenheimer. We're seeing this through Oppenheimer's eye, but he's hiding stuff from us. Um, and even from himself, but, but, kind of. But like, Nolan also yeah. hides that from us. That's. I think that's part of what I'm saying is sure. like Nolan just touches on that. I mean, how about the scene where they dump their kid on the spy? Yes. Like it's it's not it's I not like that, Nolan. I took that poorly. <laughs> well, but you you had to. You, it's not like he's like well this like real sketchball guy is like a really sketchball guy <laughs> and Oppenheimer's dumping his kid on this sketchball guy in the midst of like a drunken escapade. No, it's like Oppenheimer has just the weight of the world on his shoulders and he has these unfortunate ties with communism in the past. And this guy's really a good guy and a good friend. And of course, on that level, he's connecting with him to take care of the kid. But they're really, you know, the Shivali incidents is, is just a misunderstanding, really. And really, Oppenheimer was it, like the whole thing is like Nolan has an option. One option is to oh. lean into those issues as concerns. The other option is to kind of make them less important and seem like um, unfortunate circumstances that impeded Oppenheimer's real desire for a positive outcome and mm-hmm. and i f- i feel like Oppen- uh, nolan yeah. leaned into that that portion there probably was a third way is my view which is the third way was to like be a little more balanced be in the space of like well we don't know we don't know maybe this far removed from those events what motivated oppenheimer fully we know that there were some pretty sketchy elements to his past if you're looking at it through the Cold War frame, there are some relationships that were formed through, you know, I mean, the, just the, the 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 lack of depth in the exploration of his extramarital affairs, and yet the like focus on Kitty being this like rock for him. Well, that, that I also it's like a Hillary Clinton yeah. kind of. She was there for her man, and her man was so important to the world. And this was so, yeah. it's like, okay, 
I guess that scene to me, that scene to me was super trite and it came out of nowhere. I thought she was well depicted, like, like, like kind of interesting, but not one of the more interesting characters. And then when she does this stand for Oppenheimer thing in, in that, in that um, hearing or the private hearing, I was like, this, that was some of the fat that I thought should be cut. And I felt like it, it it cheapened the nuance of the film. But anyway, well, I think this is totally speculative, but I think that that might've been, a bone being thrown to whoever, whatever actress was going to play that role. Obviously, it was Emily Blunt, but Nolan, I'm sure, was going to have a big actress play that, regardless of who it was. And that role needed a scene to justify having someone of that stature. And I think he was probably trying to address his issue of female characters being really slim um, or, or shallow is a better word for it. And I, 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 I walked out of the movie and I loved it. And I was like, man, he still hasn't, <laughs> he still hasn't addressed that issue. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's going to get some heat for it. I, you know, to bring it back to what y'all were just discussing of perspective and like what Nolan chose to incorporate into the story and what he didn't. Um, I think the important thing to, to emphasize here. Is that and something we haven't mentioned yet? Is that he he uses this like rather interesting gimmick of scenes that are set in color and scenes that are in black and white. And the scenes that are in black and white, and obviously you two know this, so this is sort of just a review for the listeners. The scenes in black and white are quote unquote from the objective perspective, and the scenes from in color are from Oppenheimer's perspective. Now, of course. Saying something is from an objective perspective is rather audacious, but he's he's attempting to make that case. So if if you know he wrote he famously like wrote this script in the first person. So if if Oppenheimer is telling this story, you know hypothetically, what is he what does he want the people who are judging him to think of him? I actually had a different take on the black and white and color. I haven't really read much on this, but my when I was watching the film, I took it more as a tenet plus memento maneuver, a mm. chronological pincer movement where oh. you have a forward and backward thing going on, mm-hmm. which is a little bit what he does in, in um, everything. Well, he doesn't do it in tenet. He describes <laughs> it in tenet, and then he does it in memento. Right. Because um, he, he, he poses, and I'm pretty sure this is how he does it, he poses the color parts as fission. Mm-hmm. And the black and white as fusion. Mm-hmm. And what I took that to mean was the fission leading to the destructive explosion and fusion leading to something constructive. Um, I, I didn't think this in the first like two minutes of the movie. But the um, that the, the color was like Oppenheimer's um, the past. Because the color was the past, like right? And the black and white was not the present, but it was like the 50s. So the black and white part is the aftermath where Oppenheimer is trying to put things back together and kind of make things right from, again, the oversimplified perspective that Nolan shows. Um, so that's how I viewed it was just purely like this is like the the past, the colors, the past stuff, and the black and white is the present uh, Louis Strauss, um, Oppenheimer trying to like claw his way out of being crushed and actually do something constructive with everything that's an interesting way to look at it. And that's, you know, I, there seems to be a lot of validity in that. I'm just, 
Nolan like verbatim said he structured okay, it that way. Um, no. Like that—that that was I, I the whole Nolan. <laughs> well, that was the point of the black and white. He wanted to distinguish what was subjective and what was objective. But I think, like as you pointed out, uh-huh. there's I see layers to it that you can pull from, and I'm sh- I'm sure there's more to it than just that. You know, he specifically names one fission, one fusion. The superficial way to read that is the the black and white, which is fusion, is predominantly about the H bomb project. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's yeah. But of course, it's more layered, as you've pointed out, based on your interpretation of it. No, and I, I mean more specifically, yes, that mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize there was an objectivity part of it um, where they're looking back from the black and white present to look at, and the past is. In shades of color because Oppenheimer is, yeah, has shaped it. Yeah. I, I will say I've seen this movie three times now. and Nine hours. Nine hours. I think the issue, when you're, when you're doing a biopic, you have to, you either have Elvis, which is way overstuffed and is trying to basic, like someone basically read a Wikipedia page and said, I need to incorporate every moment in this person's life to give a full picture of who this person is. And he's, you know, trying to focus on key areas. And I think you're always going to like, you're always going to rub people the wrong way if that focus does not have an end product that's satisfying. Well, I think this, I mean, between Elvis and and Oppenheimer, I think there are a lot of ways to do this, of course. Um, but I think what's unique about Oppenheimer, what I liked, was it's a biopic as a procedural. Um, that's I mean, a project that Aaron and I were kick- kicking around is, is a similar type of thing where you have something driving it. There, There's some sort of urgency that gives a present aspect to the film. There are characters who are trying to get to the bottom of something or unveil or suss something out so there's an urgency that's outside of the person's life so it's not just kind of like we are going to do an expanded wikipedia rundown Mm -hmm. um and this movie had that um Mm -hmm. i would have liked it to have been about two hours and 20 minutes and i think it could have been done but um i still really thought it was a masterpiece okay what would you have cut out i'm curious you know you mentioned you know the emily blunt scene where she's like making the stand against the the prosecutors basically what else would you have cut out because that you're you know you're saying you would have cut out 40 minutes 40 minutes yeah. 40 minutes i would have cut 20 from the last 45 mm, okay and i know that, that maybe that would mean aaron wouldn't like the movie and aaron would you um, have done the opposite or do you agree that it should have been trimmed down it seems like i don't think you do agree no i don't think so oh okay my 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 problems with the film are not with the construction. Hmm. Um, it was probably too long, but not because I didn't eat up every minute of it. Hmm. Um, it's just a long film. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's well, you it, just described it as being slow. So it maybe, was slow. Yeah, so, but I don't mind slow. Oh, like I, I don't know how to. I don't know how you to. Weren't using that effectively. Articulate. Well, I mean, I gave all that. It was a sleight of hand where I'm like listing mm-hmm. off these things that are wrong with the film, and then telling you it's a, mm-hmm. it's a veritable masterpiece, and it is a, a veritable masterpiece. I mean, 
it's not a perfect film, but it is, it is masterfully put together. It's eye candy. It is, um, beautifully acted. I don't know if I could have cut anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just don't love the, the, the explorations that Nolan conducted were, and it, and I mean that in the kind of orchestral sense mm-hmm. were not some of them felt overdone. For example, this whole like McCarthyism exploration, it, it, it felt a little heavy handed of this kind of like, yeah, of course we all think a light version of communism is okay. Why are these like really crazy right wingers constantly in the way of this idea that socialism is a good thing for humanity? Can't we all just see that? Yeah, that is. I thought that was. I thought that was going to be heavier than it was, but it was still there. Yeah, and it was like it was. It was unnecessary for the deeper exploration that was going on. It was like the the whole time there was this backdrop of like, why aren't we working with Russia on this? We should be doing this. Like, and and it, there's something mm. interesting to it, but it sort of took away from this central story of the morality of this this issue, and it became this kind of it like drifted into this cold war discussion and i'm not really even sticking a claim one way or the other like you know i i may be the most socialist person on this this podcast and i'm still frustrated by it because for me it felt overdone i i don't need yet another one of these explorations this was an opportunity for this movie to look and even the and i'm going to give away the 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 ending even when you brought in like kennedy as this supporter, there's a political declaration going on. It's a, it's a, it's a comment on American domestic politics. And that undermined the story a bit for me, which is, is a story about like deep philosophical concerns with the human experience. And are we destroying ourselves through, through uh, uncontrolled scientific exploration or, through hubris through is like there's a there's a there's a real important thing to be to be considered here and a lot of it gets kind of splashed around with other stuff and then and then you kind of lose track of what the deep deep exploration is and you're like kind of looking at these kind of petty ideological discussions that were less valuable to me i i think to to, to dovetail that with what could be cut i thought there were too many there were like i'll just name three like aaron sorkin characters um rami malek's character um casey affleck's character and um oh crap matt damon's was close but he at least i think did a good job of that there there was one more there was oh and 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 um alden ehrenreich's character Mm. those those three to me were like picked out of the west wing or something and there were these kind of triumphant moments where like or, or there was a cartoonish villain in the case of Casey Affleck where where the the truth behind it is is more interesting but i think what they could have done is just done away with those layers um because like with the Casey Affleck thing to your point Aaron earlier there are reasons i mean there are reasons to police 
the security of this project. I, I mean, this is <laughs> there was a spy. I mean, like the Soviets got the bomb. The Soviets aren't the only people who got the bomb out of this project. I think, and I think the movie nods towards that unintentionally. <laughs> but um, so there's that. But then there's kind of like this, you know, almost saying that. I don't know if you saw this was actually a cool thing with Florence Pugh's death. Did you see what he did there? Well, uh, what do you mean? Yeah, what do you mean? How did you how did you view that scene? What did you see happen in that scene? Well, I mean, there you're not sure whether she's murdered or she right. is a is a suicide. Right. You can't no, see. Some people didn't see that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you oh, could. Yeah, see. You yeah. saw we, a hand. Saw the, yeah, like her head was being versions. pushed they down show into the water. Right. Yes. Okay. So you saw. Sorry, yeah. it's not like a secret. But no, like, no, no. Yeah. I think good. I think like a half the people who saw the movie didn't notice that he showed kind Very of a suicide quick, yeah. version and a murder version. I think he played that just right, but he he. With the Casey Affleck scene, it's too – he loads it up too much that that it would have been the U.S. who did it. When, in fact, easily could have been the Soviets, probably even more likely. Well, the – It's more that, – that she was actually a spy trying to pump information and they offed her. Like, that's, that's I think, the most likely thing. And it's not because I'm like a McCarthyite. Um, so, but that wasn't really do you an option think he's, in the movie. Do you think he's showing his hand by, by pushing it one way or the other? No, no, oh. I, I think I think he played it perfectly. Where oh. Oppenheimer is like, was she killed? Right? Did right. I kill her? Maybe he feels better about how he made her feel and drove her into despair by thinking, well, maybe some cloak and dagger thing happened. But when he's he loads up with the Casey Affleck scene, where like, if she were murdered, well, you know, they just talked about taking this guy out to the the ship, the boat, and the guy wanted to kill him. Um, but instead, not even kind of exploring that. Maybe she was actually part of a spy cell, and just like the Chevalier guy, you know, it's like the the so Aaron the Aaron Reich yeah. turn was utterly unearned. It was utterly it was, it was just unearned. Like, yeah, yeah. That that bothered me more than probably anything else in the film. We watched this this. I mean, it's like a it's a subplot of a subplot kind of conversation, and you're you're expected to believe that. He's suddenly viewed this person as a villain, even though he's clearly working for him and like gung ho for him in the beginning. But like he has this like detective like revelation and now he's completely again. It's just like just it's out of it's not it's not realistic. I didn't think he needed to be there to gloat over Strauss. They could have had him there as a function doing the thing, being like the guide who's making Strauss talk. And then fades in. It could still be all than Aaron Reich. I mean, but it just like fades in. And same with the Rummy. I mean, I understand like functionally they needed a witness, but it, it didn't need to turn. It really felt like these these two characters out of the trial of the Chicago Seven popped in to 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 talk about how awesome like you know Americans are when they when they get enough of the information to have the epiphany to do the right thing. Hmm. I didn't have a problem with either of those things as much as y'all did. In fact, I didn't have a problem with them at all, except for one instance where at the end, like I didn't, I didn't find the Ehrenreich turn to be contrived. I wasn't surprised by the turn. What I was surprised by was that he would have said, he would have gloated in, yeah. <laughs> in right, in, right to his face. To, to a guy who was able to destroy J. Robert Oppenheimer, like he'd eat him for breakfast. More more cutting from floor is half of the Einstein repeat 
scenes could have been cut. I mean, like, mm. I get he wanted us to get it. He wants everyone who sees this movie to understand it. But, I mean, that that horse was beaten pretty hard to death, um, I thought. Mm. And then I thought it was a good way to end it. But, like, it was like he was so fixated on on things hinging around that conversation that I think it, it, it just it became it became too repetitive. Florence Pugh was amazing. I mm. didn't have a lot of respect for her as an actress before this movie. I just thought she was kind of, I didn't understand what the, the big deal was, like what the hype was, but I thought she did an amazing job in this film. I thought she was the best female character by yeah. a long distance. Cause the other ones are cardboard or Emily Blunt. Yeah. And I didn't think Emily Blunt's character was that special. Um, but I would have spent more time on Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer's personal life mm. um, and the impact of that personal life on his thinking and his decision making. Mm. I would have, <clears throat> I would have, th- that personal life includes professional people. Like the scenes that really, um, I'm a history person. So of course I ate up all these scenes where there's Mm -hmm. political discussion, but Mm -hmm. it's not new. There's nothing fresh there for me. It's like a, it's a beautiful history lesson that I've already learned. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm watching it. I'm taking it in. I like it, but, but I realize that like, he's not uncovering anything. I'm not getting anything new there. And I, and I'm not feeling like um, it's exploring any, any of the depth of this person. Like the the you, you, all the emotion and feeling and character is the acting. It's not Christopher Nolan, and mm. that's great. It's brilliant to have brought in these actors that could pull that out for us. But had he done more, it would be that much better. Had he been able to look deeper into this human being and into his relationships, and into, it would have been that much better. That's what I'm trying to say. And and mm. Oppenheimer's not Nolan's best film. It's it's a very good film. It's maybe top three, but it's not his best film because his mm. best films are films that don't rely on this individual human personal character. <laughs> they rely on this mm. plot and this like really exciting, interesting story exploration, plot exploration. So I, that's what I would have tweaked, but that doesn't mean that Oppenheimer's not amazing. It's amazing. I mean, just like um, Dunkirk was amazing, it just wasn't. It wasn't at the same level as it could have been had it been this human story. Mm. I, I think this this story was way more human than, than Dunkirk. For me, it's a lot better than Dunkirk. But for me, it is also it is top. It's my top three, and I think it. So you're saying it's not his best. So. You have two films in mind, or I have two films in mind that are ahead of this f- for me, and maybe a third. I wonder if they're similar. Or yeah, well, let's say let's save that. I mean, it's similar, yeah, yeah sure. obviously, to the Christopher Nolan films. <laughs> we have a for all for all the listeners, we have an episode coming out um, where that will be discussed. So we'll we'll table that for right now. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you got a little preview from us that yeah. we're. <laughs> but I, I do want to say Matt Damon, phenomenal yeah. acting. Robert Downey Jr., phenomenal acting. The, the the acting in this film. Oh, Safdie, excellent. Amazing, what yeah. what a, what a beautiful rendition. Beautiful Hungarian accent. Yeah. 
when Rami Malik appeared, uh, he's got to have a monologue somewhere yeah. because this guy got a Golden Globe or didn't even get didn't even get an Oscar for, for Bohemian Rhapsody. Or just Golden oh yeah, Globe. he's a he's a Best Actor winner. He's a, <laughs> he shows up. He like you see him in the corner of a few seats. Oh no, I was cr- with a clipboard. I was cracking up. I was like, a Best Actor winner has been in the lurking in the shadows and on number of a uh, twice throughout. The two scenes where he popped up first, both <laughs> occasions, Killian Murphy like swatted him away, literally swatted his 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 uh, clipboard out of his hand, and the Drops first time like right? grabbed his pin. It was like, do we really need to oh, write yeah, this yes. down? <laughs> I was like, this is a Best Actor winner, and he's just being like slapped around. Well, it, and he was even he was the assistant to like there's right. like two guys who like don't matter, and he's like the the peon. Yeah, but um. Why did Nolan focus on this Strauss story? I mean, there's so much you can do. Like, Oppenheimer's not even there, and they don't show Oppenheimer's perspective of the moment where he shames Strauss. What do you guys think the main point of this movie is? For me, I think he's trying to, on one hand, illustrate how this was a moral quandary for those involved mainly Oppenheimer but also how this episode in history set up the world that we live in if but maybe y'all have a different assessment of like what the point of the movie was and or maybe you agree with that but think it should have been something different so I'm curious what y'all think about that I came out of it thinking the central question was is it hubris or humility that brought about the bomb And that to me was the central question that seemed to be being explored. And yet the distractions of all these other really significant, it it reminds me of fan service. This is history fan service. We got loads of history fan service when the central question was not about all these historical um, Easter eggs, they were about this man and whether or not he was, you know, humbly taking on this role of, of being the only person who could really bring about the Manhattan project and see the Manhattan project to fruition for the good, not only of the United States of America, but for mankind, because we get that over and over again, right? Yes, he loves his country. Yes, he's an American through and through, but he's doing this for humanity, not for any one country. And he tells you over and over again, like, this is not really just about America. This is about something bigger. Um, and views himself almost like a, a an unfortunate god, Prometheus. Yeah. <laughs> but is this hubris veiled as humility? And and that is a really fascinating question that's being explored. But instead of getting the full stake, we got something different. We got a steak, some but with tricky. like some some asparagus on the side and some mm-hmm. mashed potatoes and all this other stuff and I like kind of lost track of where the steak was because there were all these sides that were layered on top. And I guess maybe you don't ever lose sight of the steak. It's there, but you just, it's not 
I don't get to appreciate it by itself. And I kind of wanted more of that. And of course you can't strip away everything, but, but there's a lot of the other stuff. Um, I agree with Aaron. Um, I wouldn't describe it as um, hu- uh, hubris or humility, but hubris or her- heroism. I-, I get the humility cloak thing, but there's this general story of Manhattan Project saving the world. I think that story is told here. I think he's able to tell both stories. I think he tells the story of, hey, this had to be done, but then things went too far. You know, now we have an arms race. Now everything could be destroyed. But I think, for me, I think the climax could have and should have been that scene where Oppenheimer is realizing that he may have deceived himself, um, where where he's actually, like, the cross-examination flips at least to the point where an audience member can see that the cross-examiner may be right. Not about spying, not about uh, communism, but about um, why is Oppenheimer really against the H-bomb. And the problem is that happened with so much time before the ending. And there's so many more satisfying, uncomplicated moments after that, including the scene with Truman. Um, I don't, I, I understand Truman did say something like that about Oppenheimer. Um, but it, it, that scene I think is unfortunate in that it makes Oppenheimer almost into a pure hero um, because Truman is such a jerk. Um, and instead of that scene, I mean, Oppenheimer could realize that he knew the whole time that he was giving this weapon to people who would do this for this reason because he's not a moron. He knows what was going to happen. Um, but in that scene, instead, he's like, oh, let's, we need to change and, and, you know, this, and then, and, 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 and Truman is just so off-putting. Um, and Gary Oldman, I think, does a good job, but it's just sort of, he's so villainous that it, it makes Oppenheimer too much of a hero. You, you, you touch on something that's so important because it, it, the, the question hinges on this, a lot of this after effect, which is like, okay, is Oppenheimer really naive enough to think that, oh, he's going to give over this bomb and they're just going to check back with him to see how to use it and how it should work. And maybe he is, let's just say he is, which the film clearly depicts him to be and depicts him to be startled and almost shocked that that isn't the way it transpires. But then, the, oh, I don't. The, okay, so go ahead. I don't think that's exactly what the movie's trying to convey. I mean, agree to disagree. I mean, they they, they demonstrate him calling and asking for was he general by then, colonel or general, whatever he was at that point. Matt Damon's character to like let him know how things had gone. He doesn't <laughs> let him know, and then there's a scene where Matt Damon's like, "I'll I'll get back to you if I can." And he's like, okay, but he's still calling. The, the, the whole well, thing uh, is there's is other sort moments of t- that it's, it's, that it's, show that it's not naivety. But I, I, I want you to finish your point. Whatever. I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I, I admit that there's a possibility I'm wrong on that. But there's a there's a clear de- demonstration that after the Manhattan Project has succeeded, Oppenheimer goes through many passes of trying to. Um, ensure that his group's invention is now scrutinized at a minimum and if and, 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 and at a maximum 
restricted to the to the most possible way and, and avoiding some sort of cataclysmic outcome, apocalyptic outcome. But that is the central question. Is he doing that because of ego? Because he feels bad, moral, moral concern, because of his, like a stain on his conscience, like guilt, what is motivating that? And you never really get to that. You never really get that answer. And that it's not, it's not just this, the Truman scene that makes him out to be a hero. There are multiple scenes afterwards that demonstrate humility and, and this sense of like, um, of Oppenheimer almost as a victim that that portray him as a hero. And that was the crux of where my concern with the film was and why I had, I took issue with the lack of balance. Well, even though, even though the, the Jim bleacher scene is, I think designed to make him into that tortured hero. I still think it was a great scene. Um, and, uh, you know, I think showing him, I thought that a scene like that, it, it shows the balance of he is, he is leading them on and soaking up soaking up the glory and, and you know saying murderous things like it's a it's a patriotic mob i mean it's a beautiful patri- a great scene. it's a be- it's a beautiful I, scene but that's and the- i love how they tease it with the stomping before that too and uh, but the, but the, but, but the um, thing that's 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 scary about that and what what is so important is it is a powerful scene this is a powerful movie and if yeah. you walk out of this movie saying oppenheimer's a hero which i think most mm-hmm. americans did yeah, they did. You as Christopher Nolan have left a mark on another generation that's significant. And that's, I think, what yeah. got me about this. I think I may be somewhere, in, not necessarily in between you two, but in between the couple of things that you've said, Aaron. Um, I thought a unique and good thing about this film was the first person um, perspective. Um, I would not have done it myself. Um, we are not really doing that in the script that we're doing um, when it comes to someone's inner thoughts, inner life um, that could change. But um, with, I, so I don't have a problem with that scene, but I, I follow what you're saying. My big problem comes with focus at the end. I think because I think Nolan plays with the unreliability of the Oppenheimer perspective a little bit, I think it would have been better to end on that note rather than kind of like this note where it's like such a, if I had to guess what Oppenheimer was going to be about before I saw this movie, I would have landed somewhere exactly where the movie ends. Oh, what have we done? Mm-hmm. But, and it's clear that Oppenheimer the whole, the whole time is like, what have we done? Um, and, and it's, but th- there was that opportunity of self-realization that maybe he wasn't just this tortured guy who was in a bad situation, a bad, bad, put in a bad place. You know, he had to save the world, but then risk destroying it. And where he's like always trying to titrate it to get the right medium. I don't think that's what Oppenheimer was probably like. Um, and it's not that interesting, but Nolan does that instead. Um, I think leaving us more on that queasy note, where Oppenheimer himself is questioning, like maybe I was enthusiastic about this. Maybe I wasn't so broken up when uh, you know Florence Pugh died. Maybe I was relieved. You know all these things where it's like, you know, maybe my my colleague did kill himself because I 
you know, cheated with his wife, you know, those kinds of things. And I, I like, so opera is ignorant of a lot of that, but then there, there's that like moment of almost like, Oh, Oh wow. Like, yeah, maybe I'm against the H bomb because I'm just self-righteous and now it's the right place to be. And then before they, so more of that, not even more of that, but maybe that being closer to the ending rather than him being in control as our moral guide. I think that's spot on. And in fact, like there's multiple moments throughout the movie where that's said explicitly to Oppenheimer, like to his face. Um, most notably, in my opinion, from Teller. When Teller was arguing with him about, hey, like you need to advocate for the H-bomb project and my research, like this, this needs to happen. Teller was sort of like, you know, seeing where this was going to go. Teller says, the man who can convince anyone of anything can't convince himself. And like, he doesn't even know. The man who can do that doesn't even know what he thinks. And he can't even convince him. Like, he's trying to convince himself of what he's thinking. No one knows what Oppenheimer thinks. Um, I really butchered all those lines. But that what you just described is what Teller said explicitly to him. No one knew what Oppenheimer thought except for Christopher Nolan, who served it up for us on a silver platter. <laughs> I think you have That's to what I'm saying. A, I think you have to take a <laughs> I perspective, think he was like, te- like I think he was tempering his excess with those lines. There are lines yeah. of script that say, like, we don't know, but then we are handed something. I, I agree. I agree. I think Nolan's made decisions. I think for the most part, he's rubbed people the right way. And I think I'm probably an outlier. But... I think my my perspective is uh, I tend to prefer when a film leaves what is unknowable, particularly historically unknowable, leaves it unknowable and presents you with enough so that you can make an informed decision and gives you enough to explore the characters so that you you're you're really invested in the story and invested in the characters and then you have to look inside yourself to find the answer. I want to give a shout out to Josh Hartnett. Poor Josh Hartnett never gets any love and he yeah. was he was good in this film. He was He's good. Great. Yeah. He did his job. That's right. He did his he job. Did his he was job. very he Belichick the hell out of this. I mean, I thought he was great. Yeah, I did too. Guy Ritchie's giving him a lot of love, so don't he's 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 getting paid. Don't worry. Yeah, he is, but it's you know he's one of these characters that like looked like he was going to be a superstar, disappeared forever, and then came back in these bit roles, and you know he's gotten a little love from from a few directors, but I haven't seen him you know lauded for his acting skills, but I thought he did a great job. I, I have a question that's unrelated to Oppenheimer, but very related to Nolan. Um, I find speculating on what Nolan's going to do next one of my favorite pastimes. What do you guys think is next for this guy? Now that he's with Universal, Jurassic Universe, <laughs> the interstellar experience. Well, I'll give an earnest answer. I <laughs> Hey, I what? Think, no, no, no. That wasn't that wasn't no, directed my, at you. I mean, that was my answer. My answer was not sincere. <laughs> I think if this is like a really cynical and like pragmatic way to look at this, but I have no idea what he's going to do next. But I think if Oppenheimer was not as huge of his of a box office success as it is, then he would have probably had his hand forced into doing something more commercial. 
Um, so that's all. That's all I can really glean from this movie. I, I hope. I hope that Nolan does horror. I'm going to put it out there. I feel like that's that's a genre he has not tackled. It's a genre yeah. that all these other great directors who've wanted to get outside their box and kind of go in reverse order, do something that typically is a way to break into the industry, but instead, you know, they've already broken in one over the hearts and minds of their viewers, man, give me a shining, give me, give me Nolan's the shining. He, that was going to be my dream team, but I, I it was oh, literally Nolan horror, wow. but I couldn't think of, I didn't have enough material to provide. I only had those two things. So it wasn't enough to, you know, support a dream team proposal, but yes, I'm, that's why I went with the Fincher horrors. There probably is an untapped Stephen King type out there, or Nolan could do this. Now the stand is, would be too over the top inception, but instead of dreams, nightmares, (laughs) and he's fighting like sleep paralysis demons. All right, guys, it's been fun. Well, that yeah, that's our special episode on Oppenheimer. And um, as mentioned during this episode, we're going to have a Christopher Nolan Thunderdome um, in the next few episodes. So stay tuned for that. <laughs>